Karen Swan is a favourite with binge-reading listeners. Her appearance on the show at Christmas time last year was one of the most listened-to episodes of 2022. So it's great to have her back on our Encore programme. That's the one where people who've already been on the show come back to talk about their latest book. And for Karen, it's her latest holiday special, The Christmas Postcards. In case you're asking yourself why a show that ran in December 2021 is in the 2022 Best of lineup, well, it's because we have to take the stats from December 1 of each year, December 1 of 2021 to December 1 of 2022, to give us time to produce a show by January 1. Next week, we'll start posting the top 15 for 2022, and we're dividing it over two weeks, so there's not too much to listen to in one show. Each week, you're getting a great range of genres, from romance to thriller to historicals, so don't miss it. That's just the way it all came together. I didn't do any tweeting. The giveaway for this week is still the Book Suite's Sweet and Mild Romance Giveaway. 40 romances that make for great holiday reading, including my three holiday novellas pack, plus a new e-reader to be won, $450 in value. Links for how you enter that, plus anything else that you might want to find out and link to, are in the show notes for this episode on thejoysofbingereading.com. And don't forget, if you enjoy the show, leave us a review so others will hear about us too. But now, here's our show. Karen, you were last with us in December 2021, talking about your very successful international career and last year's Christmas book. You've made a real terrific story of doing two books a year, one for summer, one for Christmas. Could you just recap for us before we get into the Christmas postcards? Tell us how that pattern got established. It all really happened because of me majorly messing up. It wasn't ever anything on my horizon at all. But Christmas at Tiffany's, which was my third book, had just come out and done amazingly well all over the world. This book was a bestseller. It was so unexpected to me. It was an amazing experience. And it meant that there was quite a lot of pressure to follow up strongly. And at that point, it was taking me a year to write a book. Christmas at Tiffany's had come out in November. I was handing my book into them for the following year in January. And as I handed it in in January, my editor starts reading it and she said, we have a problem. And I was like, oh, no, no writer wants to hear that there's a problem with the manuscript, especially when you've just had a really big hit. And it wasn't even the main thrust of the story that was the issue. It was that in writing my book, which became known as The Perfect Present, I was writing about a woman originally with amnesia. And I decided to give it a slightly darker twist and have her being stalked by someone in her life, which isn't particularly romantic fiction, but it was just a sort of a back thread. It was an element of menace. Unfortunately for me, there was literally a book that had come out of hardback and it was about to come out in paperback, but it had also been optioned by a major Hollywood studio. Nicole Kidman was in it. I mean, it was major. And that book, that film was, what was it called? Don't Look Now? No, was it that? What was it called? I never even read it. It was when she has amnesia 
and oh, the Nicole Kidman film. Before I Go to Sleep, that was the name of it, I think, Karen. Before I Go to Sleep. Anyway, the long story short is that this was a very similar vibe to that. And my editor said, look, I know you haven't copied this. You've been writing this book for the last year. The film hasn't come out yet. But by the time your book comes out, the film will be out and everyone will think you've copied it. And I was like, oh, this is a nightmare. And she said, you're going to have to completely rewrite. I said, what do you mean I'm going to have to completely rewrite? And this is January. And she said, the absolute latest we can get the book out and get all the promo done and send it out to the stores. The absolute latest we have to have it by is April. And I was like, you have to be joking. And they were not joking. And I'm crying. I'm sobbing down the phone. And I just had to sit down. I'd probably written about 100, 110,000 words. I had to go through. I could only keep about 30,000 words. I had to take characters who'd been bad and make them good. So in my mind's eye, I had to totally flip the switch on them and see them in an entirely different way, which is so hard because when you're writing the first draft of a book, you're getting to know your characters and their stories. So to just junk all that and start afresh was appalling. And it was horrific and I couldn't stop crying, but I also had no choice but to sit there crying at the keyboard every single day for six, seven weeks. And actually in the end, I handed the book in early, earlier than I was expected to. And I have to say, the book was so much better as a result of it. And it made me realize I would just spend so much time faffing about wandering around the house, playing with the dogs, thinking, oh, that feels a bit hard. I'll have a wander around the garden and see whether I can work it out. And of course I wouldn't because I'd go and sit in the sun or something. So I realized that actually you do your best work under pressure, or I do, under pressure with focus, with intensity and no distraction and just sit down and do it, you know, bungalow, sit on the chair, stare at the screen until your eyes bleed and keep typing. Even if you edit out half of it, it will still move you on. So it was not a fun process, but it was very illuminating and it made me realize that I work better in that sort of very driven way. And after that, my editor read it and said, we love it. How do you feel about doing two a year? Because I love doing the Christmas book, but it can be limiting if you can only write about one time of year. You've always got to have that lovely, warm vibe that people want. And I thought, well, I want to do that, but also more things as well. So it allowed me to have an opportunity to do that, really. Yeah. But it's jolly hot. Yeah, I bet it is. But what a great discovery to make. And I must admit, I admire your basic tenacity because probably a lot of people would have just fallen over at that point and said I can't do that and dropped out of the whole race so good on yeah. you <laughs> yeah it was sheer desperation we had a young family I had just done well with the book you're so desperate to be successful there's so many people who want to do what I'm doing and to have had this opportunity and to then feel like I was gonna fumble the ball I was like yeah I've got to turn it around. Yeah. Now the Christmas postcards maintains the tradition that you have for exotic locations because it's partly set in Nepal. And I must say, I loved the bits in the book that were set in Nepal because 
there was a feeling of reality about the Nepal part of it. Not that there wasn't about the rest of the book, but it had a real freshness that it felt like you had gone trekking there yourself. And I wondered, have you actually trekked in Nepal? I haven't, but, and it's a big but, my brother was a climber, is a climber. He climbed Virgin Peaks in the Andes. He did the Alps. He's been all around America, all the national parks, done Yosemite, you name it. So I grew up with crampons on the kitchen table, ice axes in the cloakroom, ropes on the stairs. Just, I grew up with, with kit around me. And obviously with a Scottish background, we were in the Highlands of Scotland in all our holidays. We had a cottage in the Highlands. My brother would get up before dawn to go and climb the north face of Ben Nevis and be there for breakfast. He'd be up on the top having a bacon sandwich for breakfast. So that was my brother. And so I've seen all his cine films when he was on his gap here in Yosemite. And one of them, he had got a rope between a cliff face and effectively a rock spire. And he had pulled the rope taut and he was climbing on a harness. He had a harness at his waist and he was climbing a cross on it. And then he stops halfway across on this rope, fully up in Yosemite. And he's got this old silly film, which was like from the 1970s, belonged to our aunt and uncle. And you get this very jerky sort of filming with Cine. And of course, it's silent as well. You don't, or we didn't have sound. And he just leant backwards, took his hands off the rope, leant backwards. And you could see this perspective upside down. And I got this real sense of what it was to be up there at altitude. It was astonishing. So I'd always had that perspective and love mountains. And so what I was wanting to do was to really juxtapose two people who had made entirely different life choices. And you've got Natasha and she's chosen this very safe path, a very cozy little town back in her hometown, raising a young family, trying to make her marriage work and knowing that really on paper, she's got what a lot of people want, but her life is quite small and she's becoming aware of that. Now I've chosen this man who is happy-go-lucky. He's easy in his bones, but he's also driven by something darker. And we start off with him on a trek. He's not on some crazy rampage. We see him just hanging out. He's on the bus. He's hanging out with the tourists and they're racing ahead to do this and do that. And the journey is the destination. And he's taking his time. He's a loner. He's doing it on his own. He's in no rush. But we gradually have this sense of he's moving towards something and he's also moving away from something. And so I wanted to have that feeling build with him and this sense of actually things becoming more extreme with him, with his landscape. And... In this day and age, we're so lucky. I mean, you go onto YouTube, there are literally travel bloggers who will have a camera on their shoulder and you can literally do the Annapurna base camp circuit with them every step. And so I did. I sat for hours and I would just freeze frame every few seconds. What are the plants I'm seeing here? How is the landscape changing? Color the signs. What are the animals we're seeing? When does the weather change? When do we have a sense of him being in the Himalayas? Because actually for a lot of it, when you think of the Himalayas, you think of it from distance. But when you're in it, you just feel like you're in a wood or in a forest. You yes. don't often get those big viewpoints where you get the perspective. So I really wanted that juxtaposition 
And then finally, where I really got lucky was that I was like, okay, I've got him to Annapurna Beast Camp. Now we're going up Annapurna 1. And there's various Annapurna mountains. And I was like, well, which one? But I chose Annapurna 1 because it's the most deadly mountain. It's got the highest death rate. And I thought, okay, there we go. And I thought, well, if you're at Annapurna Beast Camp, which side of the mountain are you on? And I had to work all that out, which was not that easy. And as luck would have it, I thought, okay, so he's going to do this ascent. And I found on YouTube, there was a climber in the 70s called Chris Bollington, a British climber. And he led the first virgin ascent of the south face up and up and one. And would you believe it? Back in the 70s, they took a film crew. They had, they took footage. And so again, I managed to find some maps from climbing sites online of where the camps are on the mountains. And then I was able to go into Chris Bonington's, and you can see this on YouTube, you can see it yourself. And you could see, again, the landscape that they're moving through and where the peril was, what the risks were, or where they were in, going to be in danger. And that then informed, obviously, my high point scenes. So although I haven't been up there, I have emotionally. I've really tricked it with people who've done it. But I actually would love to do it. It is something I would love to do. Not actually crying on a pair, because no, but I would love to do uh, the base camp. Fantastic. Now, both of these characters also have sense of dissatisfaction with their lives, even though both of them, others might look at them and be jealous of them, think that they've got it made. I was curious about that as well. Do you think that often we do avoid home truths about our lives just to enable us to keep moseying along and I wondered if maybe at Christmas time sometimes it boils to the surface you either take stock of your life around about that time or else you have high expectations of Christmas and it doesn't quite live up to it or you feel as if your life isn't what you wanted it to be is that making too much of it is it a bit philosophical but might it be possible that people do that I think so I think the change is difficult Whatever your life and your circumstances, when you feel deep inside that there's something fundamentally wrong or something fundamentally missing, it's a very difficult thing to take on board and accept. I think there can be long periods of denial. And with both characters, I think that Natasha is in denial and she's trying to make this marriage work and she's picking a lot of obvious issues. I think with Duffy, actually, he has faced his demons and he is moving. He's walking towards what he believes is his destiny. He feels like he's done, that he can't find the happiness he wants. And he feels that he's got to go and face his past, which has been haunting him. And that's the way he's dealing with it. And he's prepared to lose everything to do that. So he's facing it. She's not. But they've had this series of near misses and glancing blows where they've met, they've nearly met. And so I wanted this slightly rolling sense of destiny between them. And yes, I think with Christmas, no one thinks, oh, I really, I must get the house in order and everything needs to be perfect for Easter, for example. Yeah. Christmas, isn't it? Even if you're not. Christian, I hope I'm not making sweeping generalizations to say this, but it seems to be a pause battle largely for many people in the world, a time when they stop. Everyone has a holiday, families are reunited, everyone's together. 
and you're chasing that. It's that moment where you want life to be perfect. And I think it's no coincidence that there's a lot of divorces that happen in the new year following Christmas. People contacting solicitors in the new year because of that realization of Christmas that it's not working. I think that it does all coalesce. <laughs> I wondered if you have any feedback from your readers about whether they have any rituals about reading Christmas books. Because a few weeks back, I talked to Faith Hogan about her Christmas book. And she said that she had this little ritual she did every year where she bought a special Christmas book to read. And she doesn't touch it until Christmas Eve. She settles down with a glass of wine on Christmas Eve and starts to read. And I thought... That was really quite amusing. Do you have any stories like that that you've heard from readers that they anticipate your books and make it a ritual of reading them? I do. And this is the problem because sometimes I think, and I felt this recently, I've been so busy with major edits and I thought, gosh, this isn't sustainable. I'm I'm going to have to drop back to one book a year. I can't do both. And then I think, but which one do I drop? Because the problem I have, although I feel that the summer book gives me more creative freedom, So many people tell me the Christmas book heralds their Christmas countdown. So for some people, the book comes out and they're like, yes, now I know it's the countdown to Christmas. And that's their, we're all in the starter's blocks. Others, they buy it and they say, no, I'm not touching it, but I know it's there, but I'm not touching it until the 1st of December or Christmas Eve. And then other people say to me, I always reread and it's Christmas at Tiffany's or The Perfect Present. That's a lot of people's favorite books. And they say, I reread that every single year. And I think, you know the story better than I do at this point. But that's it's amazing that people do that, I think, because they're making my long word document that I'm sitting in my study flipping out. That's a part of their actual life and their ritual and their happiness. And to be honestly, to be part of that is amazing. I'll never be able to stop doing Christmas books. That's <laughs> gorgeous. We do make these encore episodes a little bit shorter than the normal ones. So let's move on to talking about your other books this year, because you mentioned last year you were starting a new historical fiction series set on the Scottish island of St Kilda. You've now published the first in that series. So tell us a bit about that. I have to say, I love that so much. It's set on St. Kilda in the summer of 1930. St. Kilda is the outermost of the Outer Hebrides. So it's 100 miles off the Scottish mainland. And it really is a two-mile-long rock in the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean. And it had been populated first by the Vikings, and it had been populated for 2,000 years. But the world was industrializing. They were getting modern technology. And really, St. Kilda was being left behind. They were a Gaelic-speaking community. They had no comms at all with the outside world. The World War had happened. Obviously, actually, some of the Navy were stationed there. But they were very much not a part of the modern world. And they and the British government and asked to be evacuated. And so the book, The Last Summer, is the first in a series of four or five books in which we follow four or five women And it is around the events of the last night before evacuation, when a very powerful man goes missing. And it's all about what has happened to him and the women's involvement in it. So each book is one woman's story. And Elder is known as the Wild Isle. 
And I see each woman has a wild element to her. So in the last summer, my girl Effie, she's a wild spirit. She's the real tomboy. In the book, I have literally just an hour ago sent into my editor, which is the follow-up that's called The Stolen Hours. And we follow a girl called Vari, and she is a wild heart. The next book will follow a girl called Flora, and she is wild beauty. And they each have their own wildness and their own story, but they're all interconnected around this central mystery. And it's been fascinating for me, first of all, to write a fully historical novel. It's all set in 1930. There's no modern day narrative, but it still reads easily. It doesn't feel difficult to read. It feels like still a very reachable book, but it's around this tiny island community. I'm doing the research and I'm loving the logistics of writing a series and having to make everything thread together and you pick up plot points and threads that you laid down in book one, you pick them up in book two and you have to set them down for book three. So it's a good mental challenge. <laughs> and so this is going to be your effectively your summer book for the next few years, is it? Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Sandra Montefiore has been on the show a few months back and she gave it a fantastic review. So I'm sure there'd be a lot of people that would spark their interest. She said that it gave you love, passion, drama, violence, menace and peril and characters you want to fall in love with. So I think you've done some good work there, haven't you? Oh, Santa's lovely. It was so generous of her to say that. And I'm a huge, huge fan of her books. And that was a real thrill to, to see that she liked it. Karen, whereabouts can readers find you online? And do you like to act with your readers online? Yes, definitely. So Instagram is the best place to get hold of me. And my handle is at Writes. I'm not great on Facebook because I find it really hard to navigate. If someone posts a comment embedded further down in an old post, I will get a notification, but then I go in and I just can't find it. And I find it really frustrating. So I've actually put on Facebook, you know, I'm not often on here. What happens with Facebook is that it is linked to my Instagram account. So anything I place on Instagram will go to Facebook, but I, I'm not actually active on there. It's Instagram where I go on. Every day I check in on messages and I really try, I try really hard. If someone has taken the time to reach out and contact me, I will always come back to them. I love chatting with everyone. It's really vital for me to see what people are responding to, the good and the bad. No one wants to have someone saying, you're appalling, I hated it. But equally, you do have to know if you're not hitting the mark. People obviously can do it respectfully and nicely, but it's that thing of, I want to know what people want so that I can appeal to them. I'll still write my books my way, but you've got to be realistic. You can't please all the people all the time. And you've got to be a bit thick-skinned and go, okay, they didn't like it. I'll bear that in mind when I'm writing. They didn't like this element. I remember I had a reader, so I need more love. I need more romance because I was getting historical. I think I'd just written the Paris secret and then the Spanish promise and I was loving all my historical research. And I suppose because I don't write two books a year, sometimes I feel like I'm writing about love a lot. And I'm like, don't say he looked at her again. I feel a bit weary sometimes of it. And I thought, no, Karen, get your head back in there. You've got to start falling in love again because that's what people want. And yes. so I made a real focus on that for the next book and made sure that I, I did that. Now, just, just spell for us how that handle works for Instagram. 
swan, S-W-A-N. And then how does it go after that? And then N-Y and then writes, W-R-I-T-E-S. So it's just one N, swan, Y. No, two N's. Two N's. Yeah. Okay. That's lovely. Okay. Great. And the other thing I asked you to send me is, if you wouldn't mind, the Chris Bonington link. We'll make sure we put that in the show notes as well. Yeah, I will. Because honestly, it's fascinating. I could not believe my luck to find that. What with answers? Yeah. And if it got like 10,000 views, 9,000 of them are me. Because I would look up at all and I'd go, oh, I need to look at that ice wall again. I was tabbing between maps and routes and these, this footage. And honestly and truly, I was sitting down and in my head, I was fully there. My hands were cold, you know. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jenny. I love coming on here. Thank you so much. Next week on Binge Reading, seven of the 15 top books that made the top 15 for 2022. These are the ones that you chose to listen to. A great range of favourites for you to pick up on if you missed any of them or you're looking for fresh inspiration about what to read next. That's on The Joys of Binge Reading for next week. That's it for today. See you next time and happy reading.